Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a partially cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on the programme today by Martin Richardson. Martin is the Managing Director of TJ Ross Joiners, a bespoke joinery manufacturing company based in Fife, Scotland. Martin is also the owner of Edinburgh-based firm NPR Consultants. Martin, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme this morning. Uh, Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Martin. It's a pleasure having you with us. Um, The purpose of this discussion is, of course, to establish your take on leadership first and foremost. So if we begin by taking that word leader aside for a moment and considering that in a bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? Um, I suppose a leader has has to have a, he or she has to have a a range of uh, faculties um, you need to you need to be able to um, take on board what what's happening in the world um, and adapt that to the way you uh, intend to run your your business and how that business can then forge its way through. Um, and clearly, uh, recent recent occurrences have have, have uh, created some very unique and uh, uh, Situations where um, one struggles to glean on experience um, of in excess of 40 years of experience in the industry, having qualified in 77. Um, and I must say that uh, what I've experienced in the last um, 14, 15 weeks uh, or thereby has been something that I've never, ever done so. So it, that particular uh, aspect draws on um, leadership qualities and I guess um, in years to come we'll look back on what qualities were drawn out from people to see whether or not um, the answers given and the moves forward were successful. I think you're completely right in what you're saying there, Martin, in the sense that even those most experienced business leaders have really been sort of tested to the limit by the COVID-19 situation because it is an unprecedented challenger for all of us. And it's touched not just, of course, businesses, but also communities, governments all over the uh, the world, let alone the, uh, the UK. Um, just how difficult has it been for you operating two businesses to navigate that last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it has thrown up some uh, real challenges. Uh, very much so. Um, on the TJ Ross company, which is uh, my main company, um, yeah, we we all went home that infamous Monday night and listened to what was said. And um, certainly my son and I, uh, my co-director, um, had <clears throat> various conversations that took, took us into the small hours of the morning. Um and what we met the following morning was something that we'd never done before, and that was meet people who were completely confused as to what it all meant and what it meant to them. Um, and added to that, it was the with the fear and the scare, scaring that had, had occurred and had been, been slowly building up in the country. Um, so we had two problems. One, we was to address the issue with regards to the ability to work through COVID. Um, and secondly, we're a small company, so uh, it's not a wage number 4465. It's 
Mark or Raymond or Jim, and we know that they have one or two children, etc., etc. So, yeah, that was the start of uh, us gleaning um, on our experiences to lead these men and, uh, and ladies through COVID, um, and also lead the company through through this this situation. And we are looking on the show this week, Martin, to try and find some silver lining in what has been a really dark and dense cloud over all of us. So during this pandemic experience, are there any positives that you've been able to take out of this um, as a business? Um, Yes, I guess very much so. Um, As I said, a lot of people, um, what COVID has done is it's split society um, right through to the very core. And I don't think a lot of us knew what the core was. If in fact we reached to the core, um, but what what it has done is it's divided, um, in my opinion, and anyway, it's divided uh, the economy into people who will rise to the challenge. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, COVID was a challenge. Um, it, it had to be labelled as a pandemic and all the other things that's been labelled. But to to me. As a leader, it was a challenge, and that challenge was to get through it, and to get through it in a safe and appropriate manner. Um, so yes, um, on the Tuesday morning, um, we had, <clears throat> when the men arrived, before that, um, my son and I had decided that I would uh, start working from home a week or two before uh, <clears throat> the actual COVID kicked in, and that was purely because. We wanted to be sure that if, heaven forbid, anything happened to Alan regards coronavirus, then I would be able to step in and not uh, and be, be sure that uh, that I wasn't uh, carrying the virus. Um, so when I was at home, I was working on the CCTV, and I could see the stance and the demeanour of, of the men. And um, when my son phoned me back an hour or two after uh, the lads arriving, uh, it was not good news. Everybody was, was was wanting to go home. Apart from two men, uh, those two men then dropped to one man uh, by uh, half past two or one o'clock. Um, however, we wrote uh, we wrote an email to all the men uh, attaching our guidelines and giving them their assurance that uh, we were minded to keep the business going and to keep keep the employment available to them. And surprisingly, there was a good number of men returned. I would suspect between 55 and 60% of the men turned up on the Tuesday morning. Um, my son had a two-book talk on the Friday of that week. And one of the chaps um, asked to interrupt the meeting at the very beginning and was man enough and very courteous to apologise to uh, to my son and also say um, uh, to send an apology to myself, and that um, he was wrong in um, providing information to all the men that they shouldn't be coming to work, and uh, he felt that it was the most appropriate thing to do. Uh, Chap is an ex-Iraqi uh, war veteran, um, and from from that day on, he has gone from strength to strength, and has been an absolute stalwart to, to the men, and looked upon as a leader within the workshop. Um, so yeah that type of thing brings home to you that there are people out there who when the brain stuff hits the fan they stand up and they're counted and he is a leader uh, the same as one 
Bruce O'Bai and seen as a leader and my son has seen as a leader and certainly the men in the workshop um, aspired to him there as a leader so that's all happened in a very short period of time for him Certainly seems the case doesn't it that this pandemic experience has really brought out the best in people in a real time of adversity um, since Martin we are of course talking about um, good and effective leadership um, here as well um, I will sort of ask you about your views on the leadership of the government throughout this crisis because there has been a great deal of debate about just sort of how clear certain safety guidelines have been even despite of course the uh, the government's business protection measures such as the furlough schemes such as small business loans etc um, but also in your case being based in Fife, you have the issue of divergence between sort of Westminster and Holyrood in the pace of restrictions being lifted. So just from a government perspective, how do you feel the leadership throughout this pandemic has been sort of on both sides, both Westminster and Holyrood? Um, I suppose the caveat that I put to my answer before I actually give that answer is that uh, it can't have been easy for them either. Um, having said that, um, the, the pandemic was not news. Um, it was something that had been occurring since December of last year and why um, central government, i.e. London, uh, didn't work that one out. As far as I'm concerned, the UK had a jewel on its crown. Um, it's an island. And in my opinion, um, if the pandemic was as bad as it has been, and we, we must have known that, uh, certainly people in London must have known that, then we could, have, we could have closed our borders and just said, nobody in, nobody out. Uh, I, I'm a very keen skier. Um, I would have lost a couple of holidays this year, but um, in my opinion, that's small beer in comparison to what's been lost. Um, you're right, being in Scotland made it uh, and, and continues to make it extremely difficult for us. Um, my attitude is that, um, is that we didn't get a yes a couple of years ago, therefore... Um, as far as I'm concerned, we are still abiding to uh, UK law, UK law, and um, the uh, COVID Gov website was saying that if you could not uh, carry out your work from home, then if it was safe to do so, you were to get to work. Um, and that is what we did. We made sure that it was safe for the men to come to work. Uh, our message was very, very simple, and that is that if the men were were living at home in the appropriate manner to the guidelines and they came to work and they worked at our guidelines, then the weak link was indeed their journey to and from work and that we went over what they should be doing if they were uh, going to a petrol station to, to draw fuel and if they were dropping into a shop to, to pick up some food for their, for their day. Um, and... Our, our drive was, if you are living correctly at home, you're living correctly at work, and you're complying with the guidelines, and you comply with the guidelines on your journey to and from, then it's not going to get to us. And history shows that that was the case, and we, we didn't uh, touch wood, we didn't get any, um, any signs of coronavirus in our uh, environment. That's certainly um, encouraging, Martin. And I think um, having reflected on um, the experience that you've had of the pandemic thus far, it's only right that we also discuss the future just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme. Um, there's been much talk, of course, about the new normal and what that's going to bring with it over the course of the next 12 months as the economy decisively reopens. So what is next for you, for TJ Ross and for NPR consultants during the next year? And what do you really hope to achieve as we look to really adjust to these challenges? 
Um, that is an extremely difficult question to answer, I'm afraid. Um, absolutely no one knows what's in the woodwork. Um, my concern, my very, very deep concern, is that too many people in this country have decided that uh, furlough was at a crazy rate, absolutely stupid rate, um, and we now have we now have a nation who are quite comfortable sitting back, feet up on the coffee table, um, and I suspect from from what I see uh, are quite smug in their approach towards saying that they have a higher disposable income at the end of their working week or working month than they did when they were working. Um, that, coupled with the fact that a lot of business owners have taken the same attitude, my fear is that most uh, or, or a lot of business owners are basically going down to the bottom of their front garden, they're looking over the fence, and they're looking up and down the street and they're going, well, he's not back at work, and he's not back at work, and she's not back at work, and she's not back at work, and those four are potential clients of mine or are indeed clients of mine, so why should I go back to work? when I could be getting 80% when I'm not sure that I've got a full order or I've got any orders coming in. Um, and that has a knock-on effect because we rely on suppliers. You know, we buy timber, we buy glues, we buy nails, we buy machines, we buy tooling, et cetera, et cetera. We're no different to any other manufacturing business. Uh, and my fear is that we're going to lose businesses that used to supply us with materials. So we, we've then got to go through the process of outsourcing those. Um, my drive from the day I started business back in 88 was to buy from local suppliers. And if I couldn't get that, then go out to Scotland. And if I can get it from Scotland, then I would venture down into England, Wales, and, and over to Ireland. And if that failed, then go out from the UK shores to get my materials. Um, so to know what's going to happen in the future, I think no one can actually work that one out. And we've talked about leadership through COVID, but I think the more important part of leadership is from a from us trying to get people back to work. I think that process is going to draw on a lot of leadership experiences and new experiences uh, to get us to get our way out of this can certainly see where you're coming from there, Martin. There are still a great many variables in this, of course, and we're not quite sure which way the pandemic is uh, going to go. Uh, so we can really only speculate on what the future is going to bring at the moment. But given how informative it's been having you come on to discuss your views with us today, I think it would actually be fantastic to have you back on the show in a few months' time, just so that we can assess where things are at that point, Martin, and also just catch up on how things are getting on um, at the businesses as well. Yep, I would be, uh, I'd be more than happy to... To, to come back on and to give you an update on where we are. Um, one hopes that that update is going to be a positive one. Mm. I think at the moment uh, we are experiencing a, a phenomenal increase in demand. Um, my my very, very deep concern is that that is um, artificial. I think it's because people have been uh, living at home, um, sitting down over, over more coffees, more glasses of wine, um, I suspect husbands have been getting chastised by their good ladies saying, we really need to get this done, we really need to get that done. And with nothing else to do, they've made contact. Um, and we are experiencing a large influx of inquiries. 
a lot of those inquiries are fortunately uh, becoming work. Um, what we've got to try and do is get excited about it, but have a very nervous excitement, and perhaps that's because we're Scots, um, but have a nervous excitement in that we don't um, man up too much um, because I fear that this influx of work is not sustainable. And it's not sustainable because I think a lot of people real, don't realise yet that when they do try and go back to work, there may not be work there for them. And that clearly is of grave concern to me as a businessman um, and as a as a member of the UK. It is a concern. You're absolutely right. But let us hope indeed that there will be some positive news um, on the horizon, Martin. Got to say, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today. And most importantly, um, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. Yep. And, uh, and also the same to you, Scott. Um, and as you say, hopefully we'll have chat uh, in the near future and uh, things will be a bit more rosier um, we're working hard to make it that way so let's, uh, let's, hope, let's hope it happens let's certainly hope so and for those tuning into this as well and listening today please do continue to be sensible look after yourselves and others because it really does make a tangible difference in keeping people safe and most importantly saving lives i was speaking today to martin richardson managing director of tj ross joiners and npr consultants in edinburgh coming up next on the program today i'm going to be handing over to matthew o'neill for his exclusive interview with the former education secretary lord blunkett lord blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State, of course. In fact, during his political career, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most renowned politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 or all of those who can, Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is 
that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity 
to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore 
to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. 
uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, 
I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much 
if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have 
some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but 
have also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.